few weeks ago, my granddaughter Adelaide was riding with me in my pickup. I think she was, I picked her up from school and we were doing some, she was helping me do some work. And up on the dash, maybe it was a cloudy day, I don't know, and I didn't have my sunglasses on, but I had my prescription sunglasses sitting up there on the dash. And she said, can I wear those? And I said, sure, but everything's going to look funny. She said, why is that? I said, those are like my regular glasses. They help me see better. They're made for me. She wanted to try them anyway, and she puts them on, and she looks, and she goes, everything looks funny. (laughs) And I said, that's because those glasses were made for me. You know, when we're growing up, we hear fairy tales where everyone lived happily ever after. And we watch westerns where the the good guy wins and the, the, the good guy, the good cowboys wear the white hats. And we grow up hearing good stories. But then when we become a teenager or maybe in our early 20s, we start finding out the hard way that that's not the way life really is. That's the way it often is. But that's not the way life really is. And we get disappointed. We get frustrated when we run up against problems in life. And we all look at the world through some kind of glasses. The fancy word for that is paradigm. Uh, You may have heard the word uh, rose-colored glasses. When you look at somebody, maybe you're falling in love, you're dating someone. Oh, they're just the greatest person in the world. And and we say you're wearing rose-colored glasses because all you can see is the good things about them, the things that you like, the things that are making you fall in love, but you're not seeing the reality of it if you're looking through rose-colored glasses. And sometimes we grow up, like I talked about, with a certain set of glasses on where the good guy always wins. But then we grow up and find out the good guy doesn't always win, and we're disappointed and we're frustrated and, and confused. And I want to talk this morning about eight things that the sooner we learn them, the better off that we'll be. The sooner we take off the rose-colored glasses and see the reality of the world around us, the sooner we can deal with it. When Jesus called His twelve disciples early in His ministry, when He called them to Him and sent them out, He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. What are the wolves going to do? They're going to want to eat up the sheep. I send you out as wolves among the sheep. Jesus warned them. He said, Therefore... Be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. We as Christians need to concentrate on the harmless as doves, be loving and forgiving and all these things we talk about all the time. But we don't need to forget. We still need to be wise as serpents and see the world the way it really is. One of my biggest frustrations is, has been, I guess and still is, is knowing how things ought to be and trying to work with that and failing to see how people really are and how the world really is. This is eight things, if you're making an outline, this is eight things that the sooner we learn them, the better off that we will be. The first thing that we need to learn is that life is not always easy. Growing up, our parents protect us, and for the most part, life is pretty easy. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, it says, To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. In verse 4, it says a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. If life is good now, it's going to get bad. If life is bad now, it's going to get good again. That's just the way it works. We uh, Life is not always easy. We won't always be happy. Our wife will not always be happy. We will not always feel good. Our husband will not always feel good. Our boss will not always be in a good mood. That's just the way it is. 
In Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 14, Solomon says, In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can uh, find nothing that will happen after him. The two go together, good and evil, uh, happy and sad. It's just part of life. Angie said something earlier about something good that was going to happen to her. I said, well, just be prepared because it may turn out like this. And she said, so you're saying I should be sad. And I said, no, just be prepared for the fact that it may not be like you want it to be. And you may have to wait a little while for it to be like you want it to be. We won't always be happy. Something you hear all the time, and you may have said it yourself, is that... uh, Everything works out for good, or uh, uh, what's the other way of saying that? Every, if something happens, say, that's the way it was meant to be. But is that really true? Does it say anywhere in the Bible that if, if, if something happened, that's the way God wanted it to be? In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, it says that things don't always work out the way they're supposed to. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 11, Solomon says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. In other words, the person that should win doesn't always win. The race is not to the swift the battle, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happens to them all. For man also does not know his time, like a fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. And so we see that happen to people around us. We read in the newspaper about bad things happening to good people that did not deserve it, that did not bring it on themselves. You go to the doctor for a checkup and he tells you you got cancer. You've never smoked, you've never laid out in the sand, you've never done anything wrong, and now you've got cancer. That's just part of life. Life is not easy. You won't always be happy. You won't always feel good. The sooner we learn that, can deal with it, and move on, the better off we'll be. Another thing that we need to learn as early as possible is that you will fail sometimes. Things don't always work out. Angie had an uncle that... uh, he may have run several businesses, but I know he had an electrical business. He went bankrupt three times. Sometimes you'll fail. You'll, you won't pass that college course. You may not get that degree. Your marriage may end up in divorce. Your, your child may die. Something You just won't always win, and that's part of life. Peter's failures are recorded for us to read about as, as forever. They're written down. He can't go back and undo them. We can read about the things that David, King David did wrong and Abraham. Sometimes we'll fail. You may have heard the saying that a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. If there's someone in life that you look up to and respect as being a good person and a wise person and a kind person, you can bet they learned it the hard way. You don't get to be a good sailor by sailing on calm waters. You get to be a good sailor by being in storms and and hurricanes and learning how to deal with that and not the ship not sinking. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13, he said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. In other words, I don't 
act or feel as though I've already won or finished. He says, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. The sooner that we learn to accept failure and deal with it and move on and then forget about it, learn the lesson but forget the failure, the happier we'll be. Uh, Paul didn't convert everyone he preached to. He had a lot of failures. He got run out of a lot of cities. He was stoned. Uh, he was beaten. He was thrown in prison. He had lots of failures to look back on. And if he left one city and was crying about how bad things turned out there, he wouldn't have any energy left to go to the next city and preach. We're going to fail just like Paul fell, just like Peter fell. The sooner we can learn to forget about it and move on, the better off we'll be. Henry Ford said that failure is the opportunity to begin again, only more intelligently the second time. We can take what we learn. Of course, going along with these two things, that life's not easy and that we'll fail sometimes. Third thing is, we don't really have much control over life. Now, we're a lot better off here in the United States than, than people were 100 or two or 300 years ago. When, when storms come, we have strong buildings that are watertight and that are safe and protect us. We have medicines for when we get sick. We have medical procedures when, when you know, something went a car wreck or break an arm or something. We have a lot more control over things, and we can predict things like hurricanes. We know that we need to go somewhere else or go to the storm cellar or whatever. We're a lot better off than people were one or two hundred years ago. But we still, we really don't have much control over what happens. Ask the people that are uh, recovering from Hurricane Harvey. Ask the people that right now are in 100 and 150 mile an hour winds. They'll tell you they don't have any control. But we also need to learn that we don't have any control over our spouse. We get married and we see that our spouse has got a weakness here, a weakness there, and we think, well, I'm just going to fix that. And we learn pretty quick that it just doesn't work out that way. We often, in trying to fix a little problem, create a big problem. We can't control our spouse. We can't control other people. We have very little control over the future. We can set aside money. We can do 401Ks and CDs and investments. That money may or may not be there when we're ready to use it. We can make plans and we can do our best and we can sow, but we don't have any control over what happens. I'll tell you the one thing we can control, and that's hard, we can control ourselves. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus asked a question in verse 3. He says, why do you look at the speck? In your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye. I like to think of a railroad tie sticking in my eye. And someone else got just a little bitty speck. Can Can you see that? No, I can't see anything. That's how small it is. He says, why do you look at the plank or the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, here, let me remove the speck out of your eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. He says, hypocrite, first. Remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. It's true that we should help people that need help, and someone's on the wrong path, try to help them get on the right path, but we need to take care of ourselves first. 
We're the only ones that we really have any control over. You know, you can't help somebody that doesn't want help. If someone's an alcoholic and they don't want to change, you cannot change them. Nobody can change them until they want to. But the one person we can change is ourselves. Jesus said, do not fear those that can kill the body and afterwards have nothing more that they can do. I will tell you who you should fear. Fear him who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. On judgment day, we're going to be responsible for one person, and that's ourselves. That's the only person we can change. The sooner we quit trying to change the world to meet our expectations, the better off we are. I may have told you this recently about Dr. Phil. I heard that, uh, and you know, Dr. Phil's kind of a talk show host, uh, I guess a counselor, a psychiatrist, something, I'm not sure what he is. People come to him and their problems. And he's making reference to the people that come to him and say, well, my wife is this way and my boss is this way and my next door neighbor is this way and the people at church are this way. He says, bring the whole world to me and I'll fix your problems. Well, you know what? The whole world is not the problem. Our attitude about the whole world is a problem. That's what this whole book is, or the whole New Testament is trying to fix is our attitude towards ourselves and towards other people. We don't have much control. The sooner we stop trying to control everything, the more relaxed and happy we will be and the people around us will be. The fourth thing is, someone will always have more than you. We all know what the Ten Commandments are. Moses went up into the mountain. God took two tablets of stone and he wrote on them with his finger, Ten Commandments that the Jews were supposed to follow. Of course, nine of those ten were true and brought over into the New Testament. One of those is... Uh, do not commit adultery. Do not um, do not murder. One of the ten is do not covet. Of all the things that God could put in these ten commandments, one of them is do not covet. Do not look at what someone else has and desire that. I mean, you can like it. You can say, I would like to have one of those one of these days. But to covet is a strong since you're, you're unhappy if you can't get that thing that the other person has. The, the commandment says, do not cover your neighbor's wife, do not cover his, covet his donkey, do not cover his, uh, his servant. Be happy with what you've got and be happy for the fact he's got those things. Do not make yourself unhappy coveting what someone else has. The quickest way, one of the quickest ways to unhappiness is to compare yourself to others. You know, Matt and I found out, Matt and I both play guitar, and we both found out, you know, you, you start a musical instrument or any hobby, golf or whatever, and you go, you look at the guys that are really good, and you think, man, I'm going to get really good at this. I'm going to enjoy this. But pretty soon you find out it's a long, hard road. And you find out there'll always be someone better than you, no matter how good you get. But if you are always looking at the guy that can play golf better than you or can play the guitar better than you, and you don't stop and look at how far you've come. I look at stuff that I couldn't do two or three or four or ten years ago, and I go, that was simple, and I couldn't do that, and now I can? Well, that makes me feel good about what I've accomplished. But if I'm always looking at the other ways, I'll never be as good as Doc Watson. I'll never be as good as Tony Rice. And so I just sit there and complain and covet and look at them. And I don't practice. 
Well, of course, I'm never going to be that good. And we can look at someone who's got more money than us, a bigger car, more cars, a bigger house, a better position at work. And we can make ourselves flat out miserable if we want to. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about a lot of sins. He talks about fornication. He talks about uncleanness. And one of the sins that he sticks in there with those is covetousness. Now you say, oh, I would never cheat on my wife. I would never go to bar and pick up with women, pick up women and sleep with one woman after another. You know, if if we're a covetous person, we're not any better than those people. It's a serious thing, and it'll bring a lot of unhappiness into a Christian's life. The only person that can make you happy. Oh, that's the next point. First um, Timothy six and verse six says, "Godliness with contentment is great gain." The sooner we can learn this, the better off we'll be. There will always be more people with more than what we have. The fifth thing is, the only person that can make you happy is you. If you're sitting around waiting until you get that degree, that job, that promotion, till that baby comes, till you retire, till you get this accomplishment... You'll never be happy. Because once you get that, there's something else to to work towards. Heard Dennis Prager talking recently uh, about happiness every, I'm not sure what day of the week it is, every Wednesday he's got what he calls the happiness hour. And that's what he talks about, happiness. And he says, you know, the scientist that wants to be a Nobel Peace Prize winner and works years and years and does research and writes papers and stuff, and he finally wins that Nobel Peace Prize Well, that's a great accomplishment, something to be happy about. But, you know, the guy that won the Nobel Peace Prize still gets his plane, uh, you know, the plane flight is canceled. He still gets in arguments with his wife. He still gets the flu. He still has bills to pay. As, As big an accomplishment as that Peace Prize is, it doesn't solve any other problems. It was just an accomplishment. And if we're always looking for something or someone to make us happy, we'll never be happy. In Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 5, Solomon asked a question. He said, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings and fly away as an eagle towards heaven. A lot of times the thing that we were looking for is if I can get that, I'll be happy never comes. Either that or it comes and we lose it. The only person that can make us happy is ourselves. Another thing that's hard for me to learn, of course, we go to church and we're around nice people and we all like each other. We like some better than others. But some, A few are our best friends. But in life, there will be people who don't like you. And there will be people that you don't like. Maybe person sitting in front of you you don't really like that's just life in Romans chapter 12 and 18 Paul says if it be possible live as much as depends on you live peaceably with all men when Paul says if it be possible that of course leaves open the option that sometimes it's not possible I remember after 9-11 happened when those planes flew into the World Trade Center of course there's been hatred and terrorist acts and stuff in the world forever But I remember thinking, how in the world 
could someone do that? I can understand getting mad at someone and punching them in the nose or something like that, but somebody you don't even know that you have no beef with, that doesn't know you, has never done you any wrong, to just go out and give your... You hate them so much that you will give your life to kill him. How can some people do that? Until one day I heard somebody say that some people are just motivated by hatred. You know how good it makes you feel to do something nice for somebody, to contribute some money to something or to go help somebody that needs help or visit someone in the hospital or give someone a gift. You know how good that makes you feel inside. Some people don't work that way. Some people feel good inside when there's hate. If they can make you mad, if they can make you lose your temper, if they can make you say something you're going to regret, when they see that, that anger in you, they just feed off of it. It makes them happy. And the matter they can make you, the happier they are. Now, hopefully we don't aren't around a lot of those people, but sometimes at work, or someone's going to stab us in the back. Sometimes at school, or people lie to us or gossip behind their back. Some people just feel good when things are bad. The, the worse things are, the, the worse they can make things, the better they feel. Not everyone will like us. And then, of course, we won't like everybody. But that's where things like forgiveness, patience, and long-suffering come in. You might can look back on your life where the restriction between you and somebody... And it just made your job miserable. But then one day maybe you decide you're going to start getting along. And so you're a little bit kinder. And, and you don't think about them so much. And you forgive them. And all of a sudden, the job's a lot better. There will be people in life that don't like you. And there will be people that you don't like. The seventh thing that we need to learn as quickly as possible is that in life, we get what we put in. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul states uh, a law that God created when he created the world. He's talking about the law of gravity and the first and second laws of thermodynamics and other laws. In Galatians 6, in verse 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Of course, Jesus gave a lot of parables. He says a sower went out and sowed seed. A farmer goes out and plants corn, and he gets corn. And we all understand how that is. Cats have kittens. Dogs have puppies. That's the way God created things. But here, Paul makes this application to, to you and me, into spiritual things. He says in verse not 8, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit of the uh, of the spirit reap life ever after. After we get out of life what we put into it. We want to have more friends. We need to be friendly. If we want to be loved, we need to love. I was talking recently about somebody that several years ago spent a lot of money and gave us something. Well, now we're in a position. Or what they gave us is going back to them. We get out of life what we put into it. In Ecclesiastes it says, cast your bread upon the waters and after many days it will return to you. You know, you give money away to a, to a charity or something and, and that's money you'll never see again. But you often see that the people that are most generous 
have the most good things happen back to them. Life is just interesting that way. And this law here that you reap what you sow, when it's working in your favor, can be extremely, extremely generous. I look back sometime, y'all, most of y'all have been to our house, that big house that's, you know, like an antique. It's, you know, it's 100, 150 years old. And looking back, although it seemed miserable at the time, it doesn't really seem like I put that much money into it or that much work to have a house like that. Jesus tells a parable about a sower that went out to sow seed and says some of it fell on the good ground and some of it brought forth 30 fold. In other words, he planted a pound of seed and got back 30 pounds of whatever he's... And you go, wow, that's pretty good. But some of it brought forth 60 fold. He got 60 pounds back. Some of it brought forth 100 fold. Whoa, that's really good. If you could invest money and double it in a year, you'd think that's pretty good. What if it came back 100 times? That is a very generous law that God created. But also, it can be a very cruel law. When we sow bad things, really, really bad things can come back to haunt us. We need to recognize this law and use it to our advantage because that's what God wants. He wants good things to come to us. We get out of life what we put into life. And the eighth thing that we need to learn as soon as possible is there may not be a tomorrow. Ever since Jesus started the church, people have been wondering when the end of the world would come and when judgment day would come, when Jesus would come back in the cloud. But it doesn't really matter because most of us are going to die. There is someone making plans right now for later this evening, for tomorrow morning, for next weekend, that won't be around then. You can probably listen to the news or pick up the newspaper this afternoon. Someone will probably die in a car wreck somewhere in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And they didn't plan on that. When they left the house, they were going to the park. They were going to come home. They were going to take their wife out on a date tonight. The person sitting next to you may not be here later. The person sitting next to you may be here, and it may be you that's gone. Nobody lives forever. In Psalms 90 and verse 12, says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The sooner we learn that our days are numbered, however long, little or big that number is, and start using our time, the happier we'll be. It doesn't matter how many days are in our life, but how, many, how much life is in our days. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 Solomon, in the the book of Ecclesiastes, he tried to make himself happy with lots and lots of different ways. With music, you know, I guess like that saying, wine, women, and song. And the conclusion that he came to in Ecclesiastes is found in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9. He says, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun. Verse 10, it says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. In other words, be happy now. If there's something good that you can do, 
Do it now. Tomorrow may never come. Psalms 118 and verse 24 says, This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow may never get here. All we've got is right now. If you were planning to say something nice to somebody, do something good for somebody, if there's an apology that you need to make, get it done now. And you know what? If you die today, you've taken care of everything. But if you're alive tomorrow, our life will be that much better because we've sowed good things. And so tomorrow will be better than than today was. So that's eight things. The sooner we learn, the better off we'll be as Christians and the happier we'll be as Christians. Jesus said, I send you out of sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents. Our eyes need to be open. We don't need to be looking at the world through wrong glasses. It's going to give us the wrong view. We need to see the world as it really is. But you know, I talked about all the bad things in life. that We may not be here tomorrow. And if you're happy now, you'll be upset later. If things are good now, they'll be bad later. Sometimes that gets really frustrating, especially the death of a spouse we get diagnosis of stage four cancer, or a friend does. And uh, it can be awful hard to bear the hardships. It doesn't help sometimes. I guess it helps, but even though things are good and they get bad and things will get good again, when you're in the midst of the bad times, it's pretty bad. But it is nice that God sent His Son to fix all those problems because everything here is just temporary. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. So when the cancer comes, when the death comes, when your last days are here, we know that good times are going to come again. If not in this life, then in the next life. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. It is so, so very nice That God sent Jesus to pay the cost for all of us. Think about that while we stand and sing this song.